And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. Hey, Frank, a little birdie told me you don't need a satellite dish to get DirecTV. What's the little birdie? Was it Jimmy the Sparrow? It's a figure of speech. Point is, you can stream DirecTV over the internet now. Oh, sure. Next you're going to tell me those big birds are made of metal and filled with people, right? <laughs> you mean airplanes? Stream DirecTV without a satellite dish. Visit DirecTV.com. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. This is The Athletic Baseball Show on the Athletic Podcast Network. After two games, it looks like we may be in for a treat of a World Series. Happy Halloween, everybody. Thank you for joining us on the Athletic Baseball Show. Tim McMaster here, two games into the World Series. By the time we talk to you on next week's podcast, either the Astros or Phillies will be World Series champions. Ken on the move this week from Houston to Philadelphia on Sunday. So we are recording this one separately again. Here's Ken from the City of Brotherly Love. Hello, everyone. Welcome to a special World Series edition of the podcast. I'm recording this on Sunday in between games two and three of the World Series. I am recording this in my hotel room in Philadelphia as I prepare. Very excited for this series to resume. It's been quite fascinating so far. Game one, that epic 6-5 win by the Phillies in 10 innings. That game was entirely rich in detail and fascinating turns of events. In Game 2, a more traditional standard Astros 5-2 victory. Great performance by Framber Valdez, a resurgent Jose Altuve, a two-run homer by Alex Bregman. How this thing turns out, I have no idea, and I'm not going to venture a guess. So what we have here, at least, is what appears to be quite a competitive series that most people following it expect to go at least six games. I don't see either team winning three games in Philadelphia. But we will see. But what I really want to talk about today is more the idea of the Astros possibly winning the World Series. And this is something we've talked about before because, of course, the Astros are followed by their history. And their history includes what happened in 2017 and 18 when Major League Baseball found them to be guilty of stealing signs illegally through electronic means. Now, I never tell fans what they should think. I don't believe in doing that. I have an opinion. I write my opinion for a living at times. I voice it on television at times. It's part of my job. So when you do that, it would be kind of disingenuous to tell people, well, you shouldn't have an opinion. Everyone has an opinion. That's the beauty of baseball. But I do want to provide maybe a little context today and maybe some different thoughts that you can consider as we go forward here. And I wrote about this last year before the ALCS, when two teams that were found guilty of illegal sign stealing, the Astros and Red Sox, met for the right to play in the World Series. And what I wrote at the time regarding both those clubs was that these are different teams in different times playing under stricter rules regarding electronic sign stealing. That last thing is really important to remember. The rules changed as a result of what happened with the Astros and Red Sox. Much different era now as far as the use of illegal video means to steal signs. It doesn't happen, or at least it shouldn't be happening. I don't know that it isn't. Can't say that for sure. It's sort of like the steroid era. 
Do we know that sport is entirely clean? No, it probably isn't. But it seems to me certainly that the crackdown on electronic sign stealing has succeeded to a very large extent. So that's one thing. If you think the Astros are cheaters, well, they're not cheating now, or at least we don't think they're cheating now, because the rules do not give them that leeway. Now, you can say, Ken, there are still three players on that team, three position players, Altuve, Bregman, and Julie Gurriel, who were part of the 2017 and 18 clubs. That is indisputable. At the same time, we're talking about a team with a different manager. Dusty Baker replaced A.J. Hinch after MLB issued its pronouncement. James Click replaced Jeff Luno as the general manager after those penalties were issued. And really, it's very difficult to compare. And the Astros players, for understandable reasons, are very reluctant to address this publicly. They don't want to get into it. They just want to play ball. There is nothing that they can say that is going to make the people who don't like them change their minds. And there's nothing that they can say that will make their fans have any really different opinion. Their fans are their fans. They're going to believe what they want to believe. All fans are going to believe what they want to believe. That's the society we live in right now. It doesn't seem to matter what the facts are. People have their opinions, and that's that. So the question becomes, if the Astros win the World Series, does this validate them? Does this legitimize them? I don't like those words. You can't change what happened in 17 and 18. They're not going to be validated, the Astros, by a World Series championship. That championship in 17 will be tainted forever. And it doesn't legitimize it either. It's the same idea. What it would show, and what it really already has been shown to have happened with the Astros, is that this was a club, and is a club, that is quite well-constructed, quite good at executing both on the offensive and defensive end, and of course it's pitching, and really a team that, as we know, never needed to cheat in the first place. They were always really, really good. So you can hold it against them forever if you want. I get it. And part of this also goes back to Major League Baseball not penalizing the players at the time. They were granted immunity in exchange for their honest testimony as MLB investigated. So yes, you can argue that the players never received their just due. I would argue that that is not exactly the case because they've been booed for three years. Their names are sullied, so to speak. And clearly people haven't forgotten but what I guess I'm trying to say in the end is that if the Astros win, it's a legitimate win. This year's win is legitimate. This year's team would be validated. And that's something quite important to understand and quite important to remember. Now again, I'm not trying to sway anybody one way or the other. But if you're going to look at this fairly and objectively, you have to understand that there are different sets of circumstances in play than there were in 2017 and 18. And actually, it's not the player's fault that they were not penalized. That was the deal that they were cut. I mean, formally penalized. I spoke about the penalties a second ago that they actually did endure, the booing, all of that. So yes, if the Astros win, they should be accepted as champions, period. That's my opinion. 
You can have yours. People can always say what they want to say. But there comes a time also when you have to look at reality and just stop typing cheater every time you see a tweet about the Astros in response. We've seen a lot on social media already in this World Series between Fromber's use of his hands to the issue about Maldonado's bat. People are ready to jump. Always. Again, what I ask is for restraint and to be judging fairly. That's something that I think we lose from time to time. And if you want my opinion on the Valdez thing, it doesn't seem to be anything to me. The Maldonado bat, it was a safety concern. That's why it was ruled illegal. He wasn't cheating. He had asked Albert Pujols for some bats. Pujols gave him the bats. He didn't know that they were not allowed at this point. It's a pretty innocent thing. Just because Maldonado wears an Astros uniform doesn't make him a cheater forever. In fact, he wasn't part of the team in 2017. With that, I will get off my soapbox and we can begin the reader's portion, the viewer's portion, the listener's portion of the podcast. Let's get to your questions. Hey, this is Ken. I'm not available right now. Please leave a voicemail. If you want to get involved next week or any time in the offseason, you can call us 646-543-7072. That's the voicemail number. The email is tabaseballshow at gmail.com. Let's start things off with an email. It's from Chris. He says, do you think the implementation of the pitch clock next season will affect free agency for starting pitchers this offseason? Will injury history be more heavily scrutinized? May we see a hesitancy from front offices to go the extra year or extra million for a starting pitcher due to possible increased risk of injuries due to the shortened time between pitches? Chris, I had not thought of this. It's an interesting question, actually, but I don't believe that the implementation of the pitch clock next season will have any effect on free agency whatsoever. Actually, I'll qualify that. It may affect certain pitchers who are really slow to the plate, and maybe teams, seeing those pitchers as free agents, might shy away from them simply because they fear that those pitchers would not adjust as quickly as they should. But you're asking about the possibility of injury, the greater risk it would seem that a pitch clock might present simply because pitchers will be working at a different pace. Injury history is always heavily scrutinized, and teams constantly look in free agency for physical flaws that might make a player more risky than they are comfortable with. But again, that's normal. That takes place every offseason, and I don't expect the pitch clock to change it just yet. The hesitancy you talk about from front offices with going an extra year or two, that's a hesitancy that comes, when it does, from an MRI or an X-ray or a pitcher's injury history. It's there already. That's built into the process. And I just don't see immediately how the pitch clock will change that because there's no way to predict how it will affect certain pitchers. I'm sure it won't affect all pitchers the same. So it's a good question, and it's something that, I guess could come into play, but I don't see it really happening this offseason. 
Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service anytime. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Guys tend to think looking sharp means starchy Oxfords and stiff chinos rather than effortless comfort, but it's possible to have it both ways. I'm all set for summer thanks to Mack Weldon. The Vesper polo shirt is so breathable you can wear it on the golf course, but it looks classy enough to wear to a party. The Maverick Tech Chino short is ultra flexible, and the Pima Crew Neck T-shirt is perfect for those casual weekends. There's no need to be uncomfortable in your clothing ever again. Some guys just want to look good without calling attention to themselves. Mack Weldon Apparel gives you understated good looks for understated confidence. Mack Weldon clothes are designed to fit your style and the demands of modern life. They look like regular clothes but feel like the latest in modern comfort. They're the go-to choice for guys who want to look great without even trying. Breathable underwear that keeps you cool, dry, and comfy all day. Crazy comfortable but elevated sweatpants. An upgraded classic polo with antimicrobial silver threads. An ultra soft antimicrobial tee for when you need to stay fresh longer. That's the Silver Crew Neck T-shirt. Get timeless looks with modern comfort from Mack Weldon. Go to MacWeldon.com and get 20% off your first order with promo code MLBSHOW. That's M-A-C-K-W-E-L-D-O-N.com. Promo code MLB show. Next question comes from Blake. He says, I have quite a few friends who are casual baseball fans, and over the first three rounds of the playoffs, they fully jumped on the bandwagon, some even choosing watching postseason baseball over football. With the large break between the end of the LCS round and the beginning of the World Series, it seems like baseball may lose some momentum that they build up with that casual fan. Are there TV and other contractual stipulations that set the starting date of the World Series? I understand a couple of days off for travel and whatnot, but why couldn't the World Series have started on Wednesday when it could have had the full attention of the sports world rather than on a weekend full of other sports? All right, Blake, you make a reasonable point here, and certainly with the League Championship Series, both of them, ending on the same day, people were thinking, well, let's go. Let's start the World Series. Let's not have this four-day layoff in between the two rounds. Let's have the teams as sharp as possible. So I asked Major League Baseball why that we're in this situation we're in where the World Series started on a set date, and it actually does every year. And... One reason I was told, and I should know this because I work for Fox, is that Fox wants set dates. It is easier for them from a programming perspective to plan things out. And there are other factors in play as well. Hotels, other events surrounding the World Series, sponsors, things like that. If a sponsor is throwing a party or if MLB is having a community event, it's a little more difficult to do well, it's a lot more difficult to do, I would assume, if it's a moving target. So that's why the dates are set. And actually, it makes sense. It's a logistical question for the network and also for the league. So while we'd love to jump things around, it just isn't feasible. And frankly, from what we've seen in the first two games, the layoff didn't really have much of an effect. It's been fine. And while people will always have different opinions about whether it's good or bad for a team, 
At this time of year, the players are so worn down physically from 162 games and already two or three rounds of playoffs that the break can do them good. All right, James wants to know, do general managers discuss the marketability of a player when discussing value? For the Soto trade, there was talk of attaching Corbin's contract. In my mind, if an opposing GM complained about the Corbin contract cost he'd take on, I'd throw back that Soto, in addition to being a -a once-in-a-generation talent, is very likable, he has a big smile, and he shuffles at the plate. So the team that gets him is going to sell a million Soto jerseys, and that will offset the Corbin contract cost to some extent. I have no idea what the actual financials are regarding jersey sales, if the actual profit is too small to be relevant. But as an accountant, I'd factor that into the discussion if I were a GM. James, I like this question, something I had not considered before, but I have never once in all my years of covering baseball heard the marketability of a player come into play in trade talks. In free agency, yes, it's certainly a factor. Can a guy help you sell tickets? Will the signing of that player make a difference in your team's immediate financial outlook and long-term financial outlook if he helps improve the team to a point where it's a playoff contender, selling tickets, all the ancillary things that go with that. But in terms of a trade, it's kind of a tough sell. In most cases, and Soto is an exception, a very interesting exception because he was acquired for three pennant races. He had two-plus years of service remaining. And if you were Washington, you could have made the point to the Padres, hey, hey, you're getting this and you're getting the financial benefit as well. But it seems to me that really the conversation is still a baseball conversation. And when the Nationals traded Soto, they wanted the best possible package of players, not because they thought San Diego was going to make a lot of money with Soto. They thought, well, he's going to help them win games. He's a generational talent. And that kind of player warrants a very, very strong historic return. So it was really more a question of that, more conversation about that, I would think, than Mike Rizzo telling A.J. Prella, hey, A.J., no, 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 no. You're going to sell a lot more jerseys, a lot of Juan Soto jerseys. Give me an extra player. I don't think it goes like that. I might be wrong. I'm sure in trade discussions... All things go, but that's something that I seriously have never heard. All right, up next is a voicemail from one of our regular listeners. Hi, Kenny. Hey, Tim. This is Noah from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Hey, always love the show and love getting the opportunity to call in. Ken, this is my question. We're looking at the World Series right now. Uh, Possibly, and I'm calling on Sunday, the LCS have finished. With the Astros and the Phillies coming in, but I'm particularly looking at the Astros, nothing about the cheating scandal, but they've made four LCS. And I guess my question is this. In the other major sports, I'm looking at hockey, baseball, basketball, and football, besides teams like the Golden State Warriors, there's been a lot of parity in those other leagues. Is this a development thing? Is this a salary thing? Is this a both thing? To me, being in a small market like Pittsburgh, my first thought goes to the money thing, as we should be giving that opportunity with a salary cap to create some more parity and ultimately give other markets the opportunity to see their team's profile. 
those are my thoughts. That's my question. Thank you again, gentlemen, for making it an enjoyable, fun baseball season. And we'll talk to you soon. No, this is an age-old question, and the proponents of a salary cap in baseball always point to the fact that a cap would level the financial playing field in baseball. And, of course, to a certain degree, it would. That's what a cap can do. And what it is is a system in which the players and owners decide on a set amount of revenue the players will receive, a cap is set accordingly, and they go from there. But Jason Stark, my colleague and friend, has written many times over the years, most recently, I believe in 2019, about how parity in the other sports, the salary cap sports, is more an illusion than a reality. And we've seen dominance of teams like the Warriors, the Lakers at times, the Heat at times in the NBA, certainly the Patriots in the NFL. The Packers are good every year, I know. But a lot of teams never get there or don't seem to ever get there. Where in baseball, we have not had a repeat champion since the 1996-98 to 98 Yankees. That's a fact. There's been no repeat champion. Now, certainly, there are some markets that are more challenged than others. There is no question about that. It is difficult in a sport where the revenue is locally based, for the most part, to have that kind of parity. The NFL benefits because its primary source of revenue is the national television contracts which are distributed equally. It's not that same way in baseball. So, yeah, it's kind of a problem that always will exist in this sport, that the large market teams have an advantage, and they've tried through revenue sharing between the clubs to alleviate that advantage. But even with the current climate, even with the system we have now, we have seen certain low-revenue teams thrive. Tampa Bay, good every year. Cleveland, pretty good every year. Some years better than others. This was a good year for them. Oakland, at times, this year they deconstructed. They were not good. So it's not impossible for these teams to win. And frankly, San Diego is not exactly a large market with regard to baseball. This year alone, we saw Cleveland and Tampa Bay make it into the postseason. And the expanded postseason does give some of these clubs a better shot. We saw Seattle and Philadelphia end long postseason droughts, years where they did not go to the playoffs. They got in this year. Toronto's drought, not as long, really seven years or so, but they got in this year as well. So I don't buy the idea that a salary cap would save baseball from a parity standpoint. Now, we can argue whether it could help in other ways, and that argument is one that takes place only in theory, because the Baseball Players Union is never going to accept a salary cap, at least under its present leadership, and I don't believe its future leadership, whoever it might be. So that's that. And while I understand the concern people have about this, and it's, listen, a real concern, even in a place like Cleveland, of course, where the team cannot keep its stars, except for Ramirez, in the same way that other teams can. Tampa Bay has to churn constantly. Oakland, the same. It's difficult. But when those teams are well run, they can do quite well. Kansas City won the World Series 2015. Tampa Bay made it to the World Series 2020. It's not impossible. Okay, we have another voicemail next. My name's Greg from Denver, Colorado, and my question is a person that's very intimately involved in baseball says a lot of the so-called increase in velocity of pitchers is due to 
where they're taking the speed gun readings uh, when a pitcher throws the ball. So it's more uh, an aspect of recalibrating uh, speed guns that show higher velocity. And yet every show I hear, uh, you guys uh, refer to it as real. So he's implying much of that uh, speed is uh, uh, just because of the rating of the uh, guns. I'd love to hear your comments about that or your research about that. And uh, certainly you don't need to put uh, me on. You could just summarize my question if you decide to use it. Bye-bye. Actually, this is a very fair question. And it's a fair question because measuring pitchers' velocity has changed considerably over the years. Now, we started using radar guns, or scouts started using radar guns, I wasn't doing it, in the 70s and 80s. And back then, the measurements were taken closer to home plate. So 85 to 90 miles per hour in the 1980s was actually a velocity that would register higher today. Because today, under the StatCast system, the velocity is measured as it leaves the pitcher's hand. So what's the difference between leaving the pitcher's hand or measuring it closer to home plate? Well, it's pretty considerable. The moment the ball leaves the pitcher's hand, drag sets in, velocity slows. So prior to the StatCast system, we had pitch FX, and that measured pitches at roughly 50 feet from home plate. So that's not 60 feet, 6 inches, where we are now, and that too is a difference. So we've seen an uptick since the pitch FX era. And Baseball America had an article in 2020 by J.J. Cooper, which mentioned that Chapman's 105.1 mile per hour pitch, I believe in 2010, would have registered at 105.8 today. Go back to Nolan Ryan in the 70s when he was throwing 100 on those guns, and who knows what that would measure today. I'm sure someone knows, and you can calculate the math, but I don't know. But it would be higher. So, yes, there is a difference between the readings of today and the readings even of eight years ago, prior to the inception of StatCast in 2015, and yes, now that the velocity is measured out of the pitcher's hand, it is higher because the drag does not set in as quickly. It does not set in at all once it's out of the pitcher's hand. Then, after that, as it gets closer to home plate, the pitch slows down. So, good question. Thanks to J.J. Cooper, I had to reference that article to get the history of the radar gun. But yes, it has changed over the years, the measurement, and it's changed in a meaningful way. And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Visit DirecTV.com. Claim based on total games offered on national and regional sports networks with choice package or higher. Availability of RSNs varies by zip code and package. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. Peter says, hey guys, watching the Padres playoff games, I noticed that Juan Soto's defense and right field did not seem to be good. I am talking about reading fly balls, cutting off the balls, and overall quickness. It seemed to me like a lot of catchable balls became hits. I looked up the outs above average leaderboard for right fielders and saw that he is dead last in OAA with a minus 15, which is four worse than the second worst player, Nick Castellanos. This confirmed the eye test. However, he has been named a finalist for a gold glove recently, and I wonder how there can be such a big discrepancy. Did I miss something? 
All right, the Juan Soto Gold Glove question. This one is entirely legitimate, entirely should be asked by every fan out there who has watched Juan Soto play a game in right field this season. He was not a very good right fielder. He did not measure well in outs above average. He did not measure well in defensive runs saved. He did not pass the eye test. So how, you may ask, quite fairly, is it possible for him to be a gold glove finalist in right field? Well, it goes to the current system. And I'll try to explain it as best I can. It's a little convoluted, but bear with me. So for an infielder or outfielder to qualify for a gold glove, he must appear in two-thirds of his team's games for seven and a half innings per game. It's 138 games and a certain number of innings, 698. That's the starting point. So that sets the line for players who qualify and players who don't. And further, and this is the more important measure perhaps when it comes to Soto, you only can qualify at the position where you play the most innings. So, in the National League, in right field, the three finalists are Mookie Betts, great right fielder, Dalton Varsho, an outs-above-average darling, and Soto. There were only five other players who qualified in right field in the National League, along with those three. Hunter Renfro, Nick Castellanos, Starling Marte, Seiya Suzuki, and Randall Gritchick. Now, to me, Starling Marte in particular is a better right fielder than Juan Soto, but this seems to be where the problem started. Now, the way Gold Glove candidates are selected now is a process combining votes of managers and six coaches from each team, the manager and six coaches, and a Sabre Society of American Baseball Research Defensive Index, which is a composite of six different data sources. You would think those data sources would have crushed Soto, and maybe they did, the ones that they used, but maybe the managers and coaches blew it. It seems to me that he became a finalist simply because there were not a lot of qualifiers, and he slipped through the cracks. It's a flaw in the system, if you ask me. If Juan Soto this year qualifies as a Gold Glove finalist in right field, then there's something wrong with the system. I don't think that's an outlandish statement, but this is where we are right now. And no disrespect to Juan Soto, great player. We all love Juan Soto. But I am quite certain that not even Juan Soto thought Juan Soto played a good right field this season. All right, last question comes from Ryan. It's regarding playoff shares. He says, are these shares available for each round of the postseason or just the World Series? From where do these funds come? Is this additional money available because of playoff broadcast rights, gate receipts, some other source? And finally, do players on each team determine how to divide this pool of money? Or is there a process negotiated with the union or between owners in the union? All right, playoff shares. Good question. As always, fans are always curious how these are divided. And the first thing to know is that the players receive a share of the playoff gate receipts. That's where the money comes from, the playoff gate receipts, the attendance. And the World Series winner gets the highest percentage of the pool that is formed. The runner-up is next, and so on right down the line. So... If you're a team that lost in the wild card round, you're going to get the lowest share to divide up. And the way it's divided up is through a player vote. And occasionally you'll see a story about the players honoring someone 
that maybe they, you wouldn't expect to get a playoff share. And sometimes you'll hear a story about maybe players on a certain team snubbing someone too. You, you'll see these things once in a while, but that is where it comes from. It's not the union. It's not the CBA. It's the players on that team themselves choosing how to distribute that money, full shares, half shares, whatever. Now, the gate receipts, it's kind of interesting. In the past, and I don't know how it is exactly in the CBA, but it was 50% of the gate in the wild card games, and then 60% of the gate from the first three division series games, the first four LCS games, and the first four World Series games. So the series go beyond the minimum. The players do not get their shares increased. They get what would be from those first three games. So that's how it works. And the addition of a new round this year certainly adds to the pool and gives the players a little bit more than they might have gotten before. Of course, it's divided among more teams as well, but the pool in general will be larger and more players will be involved. Really good questions again this week. If you want to get involved as we move towards the offseason, the phone number is 646-543-7072. Our email, Show at gmail.com. Looking at the schedule here on the Athletic Baseball Show as we move forward in this week, we're out here on Monday with Ken's Mailbag. Uh, later Monday will be Starkville as they're recording around noontime, and we'll get that one up in the late afternoon. Then Tuesday afternoon, we'll have the roundtable coming to you instead of Wednesday. Uh, the rest of the week will be its typical schedule. Thursday, you'll get the 3-0 show, and Friday, DVR and Law. Thanks for hanging with us throughout the postseason. If you want to join The Athletic, you can do that for $1 a month for six months Go to theathletic.com slash baseball show. Yes, baseball is coming to an end, but football is right in the heart of the season. Basketball and hockey are underway. All the coverage coming from the upcoming World Cup we'll have for you. So a great time to join The Athletic. I want to thank Ken again for joining us, despite all his crazy travel in the postseason. Enjoy the games this week, everyone.